Yeah, they're... everyone um this is phil tuning in or i guess i'm whatever um kind of making my way to a more regular publishing thing i think i recorded two podcasts this week and uh yeah i think i'm gonna do a monologue pretty soon and I think I'm gonna try. I'm gonna I'm gonna make it out to LA at the end of February, early March. Go see my friend Jeff Jones and some other friends. I'm really excited because I've managed to arrange for kind of the possibility of meeting with some podcasters that I've looked up to for a long time. Um, so I'm gonna reach out to some more and see if I can line that up. And yeah, two of them have told me they'd be interested. It just kind of depends. Or at least one of them said he may or may not be around, but to hit him up. And um, another one, it seems like it's pretty likely. So that's exciting. Going to talk about some relationship anarchy stuff, um, some DIY event planning type stuff. Let's see, let's see, let's see. So yeah, anyway, I think shooting for weekly. I'm trying not to talk about it too much. I'm trying just to do it. So I'm not making any promises, but I think it's getting better. Um, anyway, speaking of which, one of the podcasts I recorded this week was with a guy named Mark Parker, who is really cool. I've looked up to him for a couple, few years now. I initially met him working in my previous job as a law a legal assistant we worked on a case together that went to trial and that was pretty intense it was my first trial as a legal assistant and it actually sounds like not many lawyers get to see a trial for even a few years sometimes so um, that was cool I was in charge of all the documents there were I don't know 100, 100 or 150 evidence documents that we had to organize and present in our case and um it was just this crazy weird um land deal that was done and we were trying to sort it out for our our client and we kind of got to know each other pretty well pretty quickly over the course of that and i had kind of a transcendental moment watching him perform a cross-examination on this uh well, who was essentially the person that we were trying to trying to sue. He was doing a cross-examination and really grilling him, and I kind of watched him setting up the structures of these questions so that he could nail this guy on legal points that we needed to build for our argument. And I actually ended up thinking about it a lot in terms of 
stand-up comedy where people in a joke they build a structure and then the punchline is kind of a linchpin that they pull and the and the structure falls and that surprises us somehow and makes us laugh um, he seemed to be building up a series of five or six questions to get to a point uh, and lead this guy to a place where he couldn't really say anything but the answer that Mark wanted and needed. And that was pretty amazing to watch. Uh, so anyway, I noticed that he was a good speaker, obviously, doing that in court under pressure. And uh, I've admired him since. And we've kind of seen each other around, but not really hung out. So I thought it'd be a good opportunity to just have an hour or two or whatever with him and it ended up being about an hour and a half and I think we both had fun we ended up talking about uh, a lot of different shit I guess um, discipline and uh, intellectual property law and just a bunch of stuff yeah uh, so Mark's a lawyer and also a deadhead which intrigued me um he called me a Philistine when I said that I hadn't gotten into the dead and I'm a musician. So whenever somebody sa- says a word like Philistine, it kind of catches my ear. Um, and anyway, I'm really thankful to, to, to Mark for his time. He's a busy man. Um, he also told me that he likes to be on a microphone. So I was going to maybe tell him that he should try podcasting himself. I don't know. He's been doing law stuff for a long time, so I'm sure there'd be a lot of people interested. Um, Anyway, I hope this recorder's been going. It looks like it has. Five minutes is plenty for an intro. Um, Let's see. I'm going to stop this and figure out what music I'm going to play at the end. And then we'll go from there, I guess. Um, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Mark Parker. Gross! That is just disgusting. Yeah, you ready? I'm ready if you're ready. I think I'm ready. Okay. Got I've, all these wires here. I've been getting my shit together this I hope morning. You know what you're doing. <laughs> okay. I hope I know what I'm doing. <laughs> I, I do Looks too. Like you do. <laughs> um Well, thanks for coming over. Well, thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Um I've been wanting to it seems like I've been wanting to do this with you for a long time, actually. Well, I'm flattered, I hope. <laughs> so, uh, I don't get many invitations to sit down and chat. So no? N- not on record, no. Oh. Not unless I'm in trouble with somebody. So. Right. I, was, I uh, have thought a lot about the crossover with um, interrogating or, uh, like, taking depositions. Thanks, Jay. Can you just turn that off for me? Okay. Brad, Colin. Um, I've just thought about podcasting a lot of, like, in terms of how we do or how I would see depositions done when I was working law. Yes. Because you have, like, as I'm, when I invite somebody to come do one, I want to make, like, an interesting conversation with them, and I have different stuff i kind of think of them as like landmarks that i like to get to like okay topic areas that i want to get to with them um and those i think of as like legal points in some sense and facts that i'm trying to work together and then make an interesting conversation but do it like without being 
uh, so direct or brutal with it somehow? It's a mix of art and science. Right. Well, and that's part of why I've, like, wanted to talk to you more is, like, and we've talked about this a bit, um, but just watching you do that cross-examination was a lot of fun, and I could see the art and the science behind it, kind of the logic of, like, these legal points and trying to work facts into them, but also having to work through a, with a person in order to do to get that stuff, and it, it does take, like, some subtlety, but... When it goes well, it's great. Yeah. When it blows up in your face, it's not great. Yeah, yeah. I've done a lot of cross-examinations, and some have worked very well. You remember them, and you brag about them when sitting around with friends, and some don't work, (laughs) and you try to forget them. You don't talk about them as much. (laughs) So so I, I guess initially, just to get us, like, some some grist for the mill i like to get a framework of like people's kind of story like i'm really interested in talking to you because you seem to be really good at what you do and you care a lot about it and so i'm just kind of curious like how you got to where you are generally um and whether that means like uh growing up stuff i remember we've talked about how you were into maps growing up a lot like you like to survey things and stuff well i i always did like maps growing up but i think the how did i get to a point where i'm now practicing law and i do enjoy what i do and i hope i do a good job at it um i don't think i can uh, get there without starting with Watching my mom and dad run a business. Ah, nice. I, I think that it's the exact same skill set. Uh, and uh, just a couple kind of tales or stories. Remember dad getting up from the kitchen table and going down to the store to open the store up close to the middle of the night to sell two lamb nipples, which are little, were little plastic or rubber nipples to put on the end of a soda pop bottle to feed oh. lambs. Yeah. They sold for two cents a piece. Oh. He went all the way across town for a four-cent sale <laughs> and um, knew uh, that the baby lambs would then make it through the night, fed. Oh. The bum lambs would not die, and he would have a, a customer ah. and a friend forever. Right. And so you just can't think about... You know, how is what I'm doing right now going to translate into a nickel? Nice. You've got to look at the longer arc of time. It's a big picture. How am I building a reputation, a practice, a skill set that can... I heard it said the other... colleague of mine the other day put it perfectly. She said, I wanted to do good and I wanted to do well. Ah. And... Yeah. So... Right. And mom and dad worked hard and they... And they made sure their customer was satisfied and and or pleased or ecstatic uh-huh. and uh, so you, the same skill set. Right. That's a really nice example because it wasn't just a four cent sale, right? There's a it's never a four cent sale. Ah, yeah. I yeah. mean, it's it's like I tell a story about years ago. A very successful business at Man and Billings a couple years ago sold his business for millions of dollars. Yeah. He was a, a guy I knew when we were all young. And I had 
colleagues that mocked the guy hmm. for driving all the way across the state to make a $10 sale. And because the guy needed, d- uh, the delivery had to be t- that day. Yeah. And they said, he's he'll go broke doing that. I yeah, said, no, yeah. he'll get rich doing that. Oh, wow. Yeah. So. I like that. Uh, there's this idea that when you do when you do that when it matters when you make even just a little action like that it can have these exponential effects over time well yeah the butterfly effect i guess they say yeah uh but we see sometimes i see people that are just they they're always looking for that thing that matters so they can do it and make it matter Hmm. you just don't know what it is you just got to you just got to keep grinding. That's what's weird about it, yeah. You <laughs> Probably, when you do something that matters, you won't have any damn idea that it matters the time you're doing it. Mm. You just have had, you will have ingrained good habits huh. and good values, and so when you do it, it'll be by instinct or routine. It won't be because, aha, I'm saving the world. It's accidental almost. Yeah, I hate to call it accidental because that introduces serendipity. Sure. It's... <laughs> Uh, you would rather have maintained some responsibility for the through your character or something. Well, I think you or? almost have to. You can't. Yeah. Most people that you know, say you 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 got to have some luck. Uh-huh. I mean, right. I don't think I don't. I'm not discounting the importance of luck. Mm. Uh, a guy told me one time, if you think you can play a good round of golf without some luck, go out there and try playing one without any sometime. And mm-hmm. I think that applies. <laughs> to life too mm-hmm. you got you got to get lucky mm-hmm. right so right well and but if you're operating in a way that i don't know if i would quite say like maximizes effects in a given situation i don't think that's a bad characterization no you, I, mean, I mean it's a way of being sensitive and responding to different situations right appropriately and then sometimes something happens where the gears or stars line up and then you can yeah and then you kind of push the button there but yes i, I like that idea of accident or like not even knowing that you're doing it or knowing the effects of it like if you're i, I just had somebody message me on instagram actually because i um was at a show and i noticed them in the corner kind of taking their own space and they looked like uncomfortable yeah so i went up and I didn't really think that much of it at the time. I didn't remember it really until the guy messaged me, but I just went up and asked him how he was doing. And um, he, he kind of, knowing now, or he told me that he lied and said he was okay, but he kind of just wanted to be left alone or didn't know how yeah. to respond or whatever. And um, so I, I left alone, obviously, but he messaged me the other day and said he was in the midst of a kind of heavy panic attack and that it meant a lot for me just to reach out in that way and notice that he was yeah. being uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, so that was like a little thing and it happened like a year ago, but it's, it's kind of nice to have little stuff like come back. Oh, it is. I hate to admit to the character flaw of, of, uh, being pleased when my actions are validated, but I am. (laughs) (laughs) And, and it comes when you you hang around the planet long enough, sometimes you have to wait 20 years or 30 years. Yeah. Somebody come up and say, yeah, you were right. I was wrong. Or you were there when you helped me out Uh at a point. But some people have grudges. I've had people come up and 20 years after a lawsuit where I was on the other side, they're still mad at me. Wow, yeah. They're still mad. Did you, was that lawsuit of real negative consequence for them then, or? 
Um, well, emotionally it was. Actually, they won the lawsuit. Oh. The jury said that the guy was negligent. The guy had screwed up. Uh-huh. But couldn't find how my guy was damaged. Oh. And so uh, we accepted that and moved on. Uh-huh. But huh. my guy had a business. The business was failing. Needed some help. Asked this company to bring him an accountant to bail him out. They show up with this guy and say, he's an accountant. He can help you out. Uh-huh. About halfway through the engagement, my people figure out the guy's not an accountant. <laughs> He's actually a convicted burglar. Oh, wow. And they fire him, and then the business fails. The jury said, yeah, the guy should not have misrepresented the fellow as an accountant, but you really couldn't prove the business was going to survive anyway. Yeah. You invited, you, you were hiring somebody to uh, save a failing business, and right. it was going to fail anyway. So I accept, we accepted the burglar. Oh, I see. Huh. Interesting. So, um, well, as long as we're talking cases, I don't know if this is an obnoxious question or a good one, but I was curious if you could think of like one out of your top three or five most interesting cases that you've had to deal with that's like not too protracted and and legalistic in terms of its detail. <laughs> well, that's possible. I had one once where, well, there's a lot of them. I, one of the most fun ones mm. I actually ended up working for the ACLU mm-hmm. or at their behest this little gal had she's a high school girl saved up her money for a car out of babysitting money mm-hmm. her dad was a drug dealer mm. the DEA was following him so he borrowed her car to do a drug deal <laughs> and they confiscated her car and were going to forfeit it mm-hmm. they and they admitted that it was her car admitted she had nothing to do with it but said he used it for a drug deal we're going to forfeit it Mm. And I didn't think that was right. So mm-hmm. I told the authorities that they might get it done, but it was going to it was going to take forever and I was going to expend every resource I had in the firm mm-hmm. to make to make them suffer for having made this bad decision. Mm-hmm. And they said, "Well, if you're going to be that way about it, come and get the keys." <laughs> but I've had one case that was the weirdest was this gal who um I think the facts are pretty well known to people in this community, but uh-huh. I'll still try to keep it anonymous. Sure. Uh, was having an affair at work and went home one evening and was particularly amorous with her husband. And he said, well, what happened? And <laughs> she said, well, the guys at work have been teaching me this. Oh. And he went and shot one of the guys at work. And Oh. And then she came and was, she needed a job because the breadwinner was in jail. Yeah. And she was hired by my client. My client had an affair with her. Uh-huh. Short. And then she sued my client for sexual harassment and discrimination. And uh-huh. it was just a mess. But uh-huh. the, it was that was a tragic case, but it was a Peyton Place case. Yeah. And if there's a, I mean, there's so many. I just got wrapped up one this week, <laughs> or last week, that took 12 years to get wrapped up. Wow. We went and just got done with the Ninth Circuit opinion, so. Jeez. The Freeman case was an interesting case. Mm-hmm. Uh, Public TV is doing a special on that. Oh. Uh, the Rastafarian case, which we call it when they rounded up uh, the <laughs> marijuana dealers and growers on the south side of Billings and. Oh. Threw them in jail for some of them up to 30 years. Oh. That was interesting. Uh, and did you work, you work that? On the defense side, yeah. Yeah. My, Can you talk more about that? Well, yeah. It 
it, it was kind of tragic in the sense that what they were doing is now legal in many states, and that right. is growing and selling marijuana. Right. It, the old timers, and it was a guy named it was named Cameron Best and Cal Triber. Cameron Best and Cal Triber, and a whole group of guys on the South Side uh, were Rastafarians. Yeah. And to Rastafarians, marijuana uh-huh. is a sacrament. Right. And I don't, I don't think it, you know who's getting who. They're also getting high on it, and yeah, they were yeah. making a lot of money selling it to sure. people that wanted to get high. Right. On it. I don't think it was not a medicinal deal, per se. Yeah. Uh, but uh, as it turned out, they came in and they rounded them all up, mm. and they charged them with continuing criminal enterprise conspiracy, and wanted twenty to thirty years out of some of them, and got it. The old timers mm. on the police force and sheriff's department would tell were telling us that they didn't think it was a good idea, mm. and. Because the Rastafarians, as as much as marijuana was a sacrament, the other drugs um, were toxic. They were not. They were not part of the religion and rejected by the religion. Mm-hmm. And so, the rumors were, and the evidence seemed to sustain it, the fact that the Cameron Best and his lieutenants and the Rastafarians, when the powder boys, the meth people and the cocaine people came through town. They would gently run them out of town, mm-hmm. and the old time cops the, knew that the Rastafarians would would yeah oh really and so the old time cops knew that better be careful about what you get you might run these folks you you'll close down their operation mm-hmm. they will no longer be such a political when I say political in sort of the underground political sense gangy they won't be. Uh, and they're a peaceful lot. There's no gunfire. I mean, there's right. no knives. There's no guns. There yeah, they're potheads. <laughs> just potheads, you know. And and so what happened is is that I think we did see that backfilled with the Powder Boys, and that and that brings violence. Mm. So, right. uh, but Cameron Best ended up doing, you know, and my friend Judge Chanstrom sentenced him, the late Judge Chanstrom who died two days ago, but mm. he he. Uh, Sentenced him to like thirty years in jail. And he had to do about twenty for twenty of it, mm. and all for selling marijuana. Right. So that was interesting. I learned a lot about trying cases in that case because I was green as grass. Oh, that was early. I guess that's a horrible metaphor, but <laughs> <laughs> more appropriate. <laughs> um, in in the, that kind of case, how much discrimination does a judge have in in doling those? Those well, sentences. let's use the word discretion. Sure, right. <laughs> instead of discrimination. Yeah, that's that's what I meant. Uh, well, we were sort of at that time at the. Well, I'll start from the beginning. It used to be the judge had wide discretion because yeah. there were no sentencing guidelines. Yeah. Under, if you're interested, 18 U.S.C. 3553. Very good. Uh, <laughs> and so the discretion of the judge was as broad as it was long. Hmm. That had a, a public backlash and a congressional backlash saying we need sentencing guidelines because we, we're seeing this huge disparity in sentencing. Mm-hmm. So they, right. they came up with sentencing guidelines. Uh-huh. And these sentencing guidelines uh, are a, are, I tell you, no, how anyone came up with them is just beyond me. They make no sense. The only reason they make sense at all 
is, is that these, this ridiculous formula they came up with, we have been using so long, we actually think there is some justice or truth to it. It represents some kind it, of reality. It, it doesn't. It's a, a fake reality. So anyway, we got these sentencing guidelines that don't make any sense. And, but we follow them. So we followed them so long that we thought they made sense. And then remember, and, and right. the circuits were saying, for the most part, the judges had to follow them unless they came up with a really, really good reason for not following them. Mm. But then we had the Rodney King case. And the officers in the Rodney King case were convicted, and the judge gave them, I think, a fairly light sentence, mm-hmm. well under the guidelines. And the Supreme Court said that they are, in fact, guidelines, and the judge's discretion is still far greater than you other judges have thought so. Mm-hmm. And so now, uh, how much discretion does the judge have? Well, pretty much quite a bit, mm-hmm. quite a bit. At the time, Judge Shanston was sentencing uh, Cameron Best and the rest uh-huh. of them. The, the, the thinking was that you really had to follow the guidelines. Mm. So, hmm. so those tend to be bigger, bigger sentences, or how did that? Well, shake they tend out? to be. The, if a judge deviates from the guidelines, I think the statistics show that judges usually deviate downward. Right. Yeah. So, hmm. uh, do you have a any kind of read on how this stuff might change in Montana and? and the coming years with with legalization and how situations like that if if our lawmakers would be smart enough to build in things that keep us from or i don't know there's something about recognizing the fact that like just a few years ago or even now here people could be put in jail for doing that and then usually white people or people who have access to capital can uh, turn around and open a legal business and make a bunch of money on it um, and some, I guess, some places are trying to account for that um, by well, lifting I, certain people up, maybe. But well, one cannot. If you go to a prison anywhere in the United States, mm. you will notice that the prison population is largely male. Mm-hmm. It's largely between the ages of eighteen and thirty, and it's largely people of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can debate till the cows come home how in the heck that happened mm-hmm. which is it is it bad is it good Should, what can we do to re, uh, remedy if we determine it's a problem but mm-hmm. it's it's just a fact of life mm-hmm. uh, and believe me smarter people than me have sat around and tried to figure out mm-hmm. how in the hell to solve the problem yeah yeah and we haven't come anywhere, anywhere close. Right. I mean, we don't. There's still places in this uh, country right now which are far more dangerous to walk down the street than Beirut. Yeah. Or even, um, even the green zone in Iraq. Mm. So I don't know what the answer is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty gnarly problems. <laughs> Well, yeah, they've been around since time began. I mean, there's some solutions, um, and that is dictators usually don't have those problems. Uh. Castro didn't have them. Stalin didn't have them. Mayor Daley didn't have them. Yeah. I mean, he... uh, uh, But 
you can do a lot if you want to suspend civil liberties. Right. And so, and we'd have, no one's hijacking planes anymore. Mm. No one's, uh, because we've completely suspended civil liberties at the airport. Mm. You are searched completely. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and all your rights of privacy largely disappear. Right. Fourth Amendment doesn't apply because you're getting on a plane. Mm-hmm. We don't do that for subways. Yeah. Uh, oh. And we don't do it for all sorts of other places where people... We don't do it for the streets. I right. Mean, if... Obviously. Bloomberg, like Bloomberg Stop and Frisk program. Right. They can stop you and frisk you at an airport anytime they want. Mm. And we put up with that intrusion mm-hmm. our liberty for the greater good, but Bloomberg says stop and frisk on the city of streets of of New York. Oh my goodness, that's terrible. Yeah. Um, What's uh, it, there's a difference. Somebody chooses to get on a plane in some sense more than they choose to be walking around the street. Well, that's an argument, and I hate to say it, it's a false one. Yeah. No one chooses to get on a plane. Mm-hmm. We if you. There is a huge swath of the American economy that if you want to participate in, you are going to have to fly in an airplane. Mm. Um, if, as a lawyer, if mm-hmm. I declared today I'm never going to fly again, right. um, the number of clients that hire me would go down. Mm. If you just get on LinkedIn and say, oh, by the way, I will never get on a, I will never put myself in a position where I can mm. get frisked. Mm. You'll oh. I mean, yeah. I, I can't go into a courthouse without getting frisked. Right. In fact, I've said before uh, that I live in a sort of a, a hamster tube. Mm. Uh, hmm. And that is I'm protected everywhere I go. Uh, I, I, go I go into a bank with guards. Mm-hmm. I go from there to courthouse with guards. Mm. I go to the airport with guards. There's cameras on me all mm. the time. Um, there is largely a continuous public record of where I'm at mm-hmm. um, at all times and mm-hmm. most places I'm at I'm subject to complete search mm-hmm. uh, and hmm. so I don't know if you've got time for it would be a complete different essay I could go on on how I think I have as much time as you have. I don't okay. have anything till four thirty today. <laughs> oh, I don't have that much time. <laughs> I, I just, I just think that uh, the indignation sometimes over the intrusion into the liberty of minorities, let's say, in by the stop and frisk. Now, I'm not a big fan of stop and frisk, but bec- and, but the people that say, "Oh, this is an intrusion on." Um, the minority population only, um, right. and, or disproportionately so. Right, right. Um, I think there's a case to be made that it is it's saving um, lives of the members of the minority, hmm. uh, but there is a certain weakness of will to 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 press the issue. Mm. And say, listen, we this is not. There's abuse. There's abuses. There's abuses when I go to the airport. Mm-hmm. Once in a while, a TSA agent will honk you mm-hmm. for no reason, and uh, <laughs> so. But I'm just. It'd be. I'm pretty well protected. 
Yeah. And there's people out there, when they get out of their the subway to get to their job at the Burger King on the south side of Chicago, right? They're, I'm, it's not hyperbole to say they take their life in their hands every morning. Mm. And what if we armed that corridor mm. to the same extent I get an armed corridor and all the stuff I do? Mm. They, there people squeak, people would squeak and squawk. Mm-hmm. So I'm confused about where you're falling on this, like. Uh are you good? Are you pissed that the TSA honks you every now and then, or, and do you feel like that's too far, or, or and that's a pain in your ass because you have to travel in, on planes? No, I think that it's, I think that's a natural encroachment, a, a natural uh-huh. access uh, to the reality of TSA. Yeah, I, I'm not pissed. I yeah, because one I I. Largely don't get pissed. Yeah, <laughs> I just I could tell. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> it's probably why we get along. <laughs> yeah, I, it takes a lot to get me angry. Yeah, and part of it is I think it's my nature, and it's also, um, I'm sort of I I, I am indignant over all the indignation in the world. <laughs> ah, right. <laughs> Everyone's indignant over everything anymore. Goodness yeah, yeah. Gracious. Right. All mad. Oh God! It's well, just ridiculous. <laughs> um, that's part of why I'm interested in this podcast. I've and it's just been something like a theme for it that's come up, and this idea of like bringing together disparate groups or supposedly disparate groups because everybody's um, divided on a political spectrum so much nowadays. And yep, I've had a lot of really nice experiences, um, or I guess just by now it feels like a lot. Um, a couple like of people who are fundamentalist Christians who yeah. are, who have asked me to talk or I asked them to talk. Um, one of whom we had like a two, almost three hour conversation. Um, I don't know if you know Don Corcoran at all. No. Um, but anyway, we talked and at the end I didn't realize that he was like a fundamentalist Christian and that's a, a dicey term, but, um, until the end when he mentioned it and then it's kind of like oh okay this stuff doesn't really matter we can talk for two hours about loads of other yeah. things and I, I know that you're on the right end of the on the spectrum it seems the correct like end yes the correct right. end yeah <laughs> as you might say um but i've also I, like really enjoyed what we've had to say before and uh, this just seems like a good way to bring it bring it together and show that we have usually a lot more in common than we don't. Yeah, I... The world has certainly not a shortage of commentators about Mm -hmm. the modern condition and Mm -hmm. why things are getting less civil than they used to be. Yeah. And there's... If you don't mind, I'll share a few of my observations. Please, yeah. Well, first of all, you know, they used to tell me when I first started practicing law, that God, things were more civil than more, in more gentlemanly. I mean, you could yeah. get along. Well, when you, through laws and institutions, and through tradition, huh. um, say, okay, this group can't practice law. Right. This group can't practice law. Mm. This group can't practice law. We're limiting the participants in this legal field Mm -hmm. to people that pretty much walk, act, and think like I do. Mm -hmm. Well, hell, you're going to get more civility. Right. 
But when you say, okay, Catholics can start practicing law, <laughs> we're not going to have artificial barriers to Jews, women can get in, of course the minorities can now get in, Yeah, um, you're going to perhaps have uh, more voices of discontent uh. or, or different voices. Mm. So, you know, if, ah. if, and, and, and so no, things weren't great back then. The people, a There's lot of a lot of very powerful forces were oppressing voices. Right. It so noise. The noise that we hear is, uh, and we call the lack of civility is actually the lack of oppression. Uh huh. Of now, I still believe me. I think it gets way out of hand. Sure. Um, and I think it gets taken advantage of. When I see people that I know are well off and have every advantage in the world, you know, act as if they're oppressed, give Uh, me a break. Um, Right. So that's one observation. The second observation is is that there's a certain, is that you can't hit anybody in the mouth anymore Uh because you're, first of all, it's illegal, but second of all... You mean literally? Literally. Uh I mean, actually physically smack somebody in the face for mouthing off. Yeah, yeah. When I grew up, if you had wanted to insult somebody, you couldn't text them. Mm-hmm. You had to go up their face and tell them. Right. And then you had to stand there and face the consequences. Right, right. So you didn't say the things they say in social media now to people because yeah, yeah. you might be picking up your teeth and the <laughs> cop and the cop is going to say, sorry about yeah. your bad luck. Right. You shouldn't have done that. Right. And also there's a certain amount of familiarity. I, If you... T- there's one story that I tell, and it's actually true, and it comes from high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess you can edit your podcast all you want and take this out. But I usually don't, okay. but if you but want me to snip some things. No, I don't care what you take. But anyway, yeah. it's I was on the speech team, speech, debate, drama mm-hmm. team, and then I was not by any stretch of the imagination an athlete. Mm-hmm. Well, I was hanging around with some of my friends that were on the football team, and they were lamenting mm. um, horribly that they were going to go to Great Falls for a football game mm. and that they wouldn't be able to get hotel rooms. I said, what do you mean you can't get hotel rooms? Mm. I thought you came home right after the game. He said, well, what we do is we usually go up early in the morning, we practice, we get used to the field in the day, mm-hmm. then, then the coaches will rent hotel rooms for us to rest in the afternoon, mm-hmm. Then we go back, play the game, and then get on the bus and come home. Mm-hmm. I said, well, goodness gracious, the speech debate drama club, we're all up there in Great Falls, and we have hotel rooms rented, mm-hmm. but we, our, our speech meet we won't be over to 8 or 9. Why mm-hmm. don't you just go to those rooms and use them mm-hmm. and then leave and we'll be there? Yeah, yeah. And I went and talked to the coaches about that, and they just looked at me like, oh, we can't have that. Hmm. No, we, you know, that's not a good idea. And finally, though, they relented. And they were, they really were worried about the speech team and the athletes being in the same room at the same time because there was going to be a brief time at the hotel. We were all together. Yeah. And they were nervous about that. Nervous about that. Yeah. But what happened is we, and we were all together at the hotel at the same time. And we were all going through the same exact emotional state. Hmm. We we're all pre-performance anxiety, mm-hmm. nervous about are we ready, are we not ready? Nice. Yeah. What are the problems? And and it was 
I, I wouldn't say it gave up. There wasn't any lifelong friendships or anything mm. like that formed. But I tell you, there was a degree of understanding and camaraderie um, that <coughs> that was helpful. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's the same way with any mm-hmm. human transaction. If you can get in the same room and engage all five senses, you're going to have a better outcome mm. normally. Ah, nice. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I'd suggest. And that's why judges wisely at mediation say, no, you're not going to be available by phone. You're going to be there. You're going to get in. Yeah. You're going you're gonna to get to... Lewistown, right? You're gonna go to the Yogo Inn. You go to that conference room, and you're gonna be in that room. Yeah, yeah. And you're not gonna be in your Manhattan apartment on the speakerphone, mm. telling us what to do out here. Yeah, yeah. Bless you. No sneeze button, I guess. <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> I might or might not snip that. <laughs> I tend to be pretty lazy with my editing, but. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe I am allergic to cats. I don't know, but I've been sneezing uh, all week. Have you? Yeah. Um, part of what I like about doing this podcasting stuff is that it's a chance to get in a room with somebody and kind of engage that way. Yep. Um, some people do remote podcasting, obviously. Uh, it's still radio where you can jump on the phone with somebody, and that's handy. I've done that, too. But uh, somebody I look up to named Chris Ryan, who's an author, podcaster guy, makes a point of, of going in his van to visit people. He goes across the country um, because he finds so much falls out of being present in a room with somebody and engaging like that. Because um, you can like spend a couple hours talking to somebody and form a friendship, essentially, in that yeah. time span. I've never... I... After you get old enough, you get a bit pedantic and uh-huh. lecture younger attorneys <laughs> more than you should probably. But I can, I, I, part of my lecture is always, you will never, ever regret getting your ass out of a chair. Can I use that word on your You podcast? can curse as much as you want. Okay. Yep. And traveling to someone's office, their home, across uh-huh. country to engage in face-to-face contact. Uh-huh. I have, I have gone to the other side of the United States to have a conversation, which I could have had over the phone, mm. at $1,000 a cost to my client. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and and it was the best thing. Yeah. Because you get to, you, you can learn so much. Right. And so it's a good thing, not a bad. Right. Well, it's something just about getting a feel for for something that you can't really get a handle on if you only have one dimension to work with yeah know, there's all sorts the of studies about um, the percent of communication that is not through just the words but the right. eye contact and the right. facial facial gestures uh, facial expression eye ge- uh, hand gestures things yeah. like that that's that validate the idea that you should be there right. in the room so this would be in a case going to see a special witness or going to talk to your client particularly? Witness, or? client. Mm-hmm. Uh, opposing counsel. Uh, mm-hmm. Fellow counsel. Right, just any piece. Any, any, any person that's going to be an integral part of yeah. whatever you got going on, right. either on your side or the other side. Just best to get in the room. In fact, I'm thinking about it going to Denver next week to meet with some people. Mm. For similar reasons. Yep. 
Um, I was curious. So you're still working full time. What is full time for you? Do you have a number count on how many hours you work a week at all? Oh. Because you're always thinking about it on some level, in I'm some, sure. In some respect, if I'm awake, I'm working. Right. Unless my mind is distracted by fishing or hunting or um, TV doesn't really distract me. I'm still on my phone yeah, answering yeah. emails. Right. Uh, like, for example, we're sitting here, like, <laughs> you know, three emails come in when I'm representing an attorney, you know malpractice case yeah another one a uh, I just hired somebody to help me out up in Missoula on a case mm. and then I mean just one thing after another. Yeah, yeah so actual time in the uh, actual time I bill clients you know, uh-huh. varies 30 to 40 hours a month uh-huh. I mean not a week yeah but you're l- largely kind of working all the time right yeah yeah I guess, calls th- I guess this isn't work, but right, it's close. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Right? Um, do you have an idea of? And I don't know if this is like in podcasting, people don't like when you ask them how many listeners they have because it's kind of like asking somebody how many how much money's in their yeah. bank account. But um, I, I'm curious about your caseload, or if you might quantify that somehow. And obviously, some cases are not active at different times and. But I'm just curious, because it's always kind of mind-blowing for me to hear about how, how much work people do, and I imagine you have a lot. <laughs> well, if you want your mind-blowing about the workload, don't ask me. Ask uh, a public defender. Right, right, right. Uh, they, they, they've got superpowers beyond my comprehension in mm. terms of what they have to manage. Mm-hmm. And I learned, I've learned that both from experience and from being the chairman of the public defender commission and watch that workload go mm. through. Uh, mm. Now, my own personal workload is, luckily, with two partners and two associates, I think fairly manageable. Mm-hmm. The, this The beginning of this year was like the beginning of most years. Stuff starts kind of pouring in mm. uh, for the first two or three weeks of the year. Mm-hmm. Pent-up issues. Right. So Finally dealing with them. <laughs> so I don't know how... I mean, I, some people have a list of number of cases they're yeah. handling at one time. <clears throat> I know mine goes down mm. every year because the cases just get bigger. Right, right. Uh, and so, I, in fact, I was on the phone with some prosecutors this morning. Mm. And... They, they're not all good professional prosecutors, all nice guys. But they're odd. It's they're odd, not odd, but it's hard to talk to them for me sometimes. Because when I tell them I think they don't have a case, or they think he's got problems with the case, they kind of take it personally. They oh, mm. you know, you're accusing me of bad lawyering. Mm. They don't use those words, but you have to tiptoe through it. And I, mm-hmm. <coughs> I do think they've got problems with the case. Now I've seen innocent guys get convicted, so I'm not telling them I'm going to beat them. Mm-hmm. But I do think my guy's innocent. So, mm. You know, the question people ask you, how do you defend somebody you know is guilty? That's a heck of a lot easier than defending somebody you know is innocent. Mm. I can tell that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I feel like I've been asking you a lot of questions, but you're welcome to oh. to, to make it a two-way thing, too. Um, oh, I just... Your podcast, where do I find it? Is it on the internet or something? It is, yeah, yeah. Um, have you li- you've listened to podcasts before? Uh, I have. I've listened to some 
the podcasts I listen to are Quirks and Quirks. Okay. And I've and I've listened to it before it was a podcast. I oh. knew, I knew where it was. Uh, I I followed CBC when the only way you could get it is at after dark. The Regina station you can get I think at five forty or five sixty. Yeah, a.m. yeah. So I've been listening to that for twenty years, but now okay, you can cheat. Everything's on the internet, right? And so you went from that to you went from quirks and quirks that you had to get terrestrially, then you could get it on the internet. Now that you got these podcasts, uh-huh. you don't have to manage your life at all. You don't have to <laughs> say, okay, what time is it? Oh. Quirks and quirks come on. I can. I can pull up every single one of them yeah, yeah. and play it right now. Right. So I, Quirks and Quirks, I've always liked. There used to be a great one on CBC, but the patriarch of the show died. Mm. It called Vinyl Cafe. Uh-huh. It was just marvelous. And I always regret I didn't get to see a live show. Oh, I liked uh, Prairie Home Companion, Yeah, but Garrison flamed out. Yeah. Uh, what else do I listen to? Oh, I've, I, it's cheap. It's about 70 bucks a year. Yeah. Everyone gets stuff for free except me. I have to see they pay for it. <laughs> this tune-in app. Oh? Every radio, every single ball game. Oh, uh, okay. I can get. And I would, most, a lot of times I'd rather listen to stuff uh, over the radio than watch it on TV. Mm. I could live without a TV, but I couldn't live without a radio. Yeah. Interesting. In fact, we have a house in Las Vegas, and we just bought a TV this year. And for seven years, we've never had a TV in it. At all, yeah. But that is kind of overstating one's purity because everyone's got these phones and computers, which essentially are TVs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, One guy I've gotten to be friends with doing this is... uh, named Jeff and he's he lives in LA when he works in the tech industry yeah and we've kind of developed a relationship where uh, we'll call each other and just bullshit for yeah. an hour or whatever if we have the time and um, it's it's been really fruitful actually because he's another person um, who's like a I think he was a vocal capitalist in high school well, like for him somebody yeah yeah <laughs> um, but he's and I bought speakers from him when I um from my, from my car when I was in high school. And it's been funny to talk to him and kind of get his angle, and it's been, like, we've both been sitting on a pile of information that we hadn't been able to access with other people, but now that we're talking and kind yeah. of doing it from different angles, we can, we can I don't know, we're talking about some interesting stuff, and um, he just talks about how all the effects of having these screens in our pockets um, and I don't know if that's something that you've done, like, a lot of research on or notice and come Well, I've, I've done no research yeah. on it because that would be work. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I've noticed the effect on it, and mm. believe me, I'm not immune to it. Mm. Uh, and I am, and one thing I am good about is both like, being critical of people's behaviors and having the same behavior myself. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so <laughs> it, the fact that I criticize people, uh, the fact that I criticize uh, certain human behaviors <clears throat> doesn't mean that I've sworn it off myself. But, right. Uh, I, I actually think, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to study, read, or meet a, a fellow named Albert Borgman. 
Oh, I like Albert a lot. He's and, a mentor at college. So he, he's there. I wish I could roll the name of the fellow off my lips every time. I always have to look it up. But it was a, a Swiss pharmacist who came up with the phrase, it's the dose that makes the poison. Yeah. So I think that's true with most mm-hmm. philosophy professors. It's good. They're good uh, in appropriate doses, but they're poison in too much dose. Philosophy professors? Philosophy professors. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I, and, and I, I think it's the same whether left or right, like Anne Ran. Mm. You know, Anne Ran stakes out, I think, in fairly... Um, clever terms her political and social philosophies mm. but I also think that it's only good till about you're a sophomore in college mm-hmm. and then you gotta move on Right, people that get stuck in that mud <laughs> or in Marxian mud or any of that mud uh. and, and just say oh good there's this one person and this one person's gonna guide me through it all right. um, and don't start to build brick by brick an amalgam of mm. of uh, thought mm-hmm. uh, it can be it can be limiting mm. uh so right but Al- and albert's kind of the same way uh <laughs> although i liked albert hey i took him for philosophy 101 oh oh you did too so what year would that have been oh let me see the ice had just receded from the continent so no, I'm just teasing. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, it was 1974. Yeah, okay. And he, um, I I I found his voice interesting. I found I really liked philosophy classes because, especially guys like Tom Huff mm. and Borgman showed their work. Mm-hmm. In other words, they just didn't come up. They would walk you through the syllogisms on how they got there. Now, I didn't always agree with them. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but they did show their work. And uh, in, a, in an odd way, I was, of course, then, instead of an old, fat conservative, I was then a young, skinny conservative. <laughs> and uh, they almost, it, it seemed to me, that unlike other backwater um, disciplines at the university, <laughs> the philosophy professors <laughs> liked someone in the class that disagreed. Yeah, they, yeah. They'd almost, oh, you know, what Parker going to mouth off? Right, right. About? And so uh, Borgman was, I still remember the stuff he made us read, Heidegger. Yeah. Uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Yeah. Uh, what are poets for? I think Heidegger wrote that. Okay. Uh, and then he, F- oh, I know uh, the dialogues, Plato's yeah. work. Yeah. Plato really quoting Socrates, I guess. Right. And so, and I guess, and believe me, that I couldn't tell you what other classes I took that year. Hmm. And I know, and I can recite the syllabus to his class so hmm. that. Right. Suggest he's a good professor. Sure. Uh, so, but he wrote, and he was thinking then about technology. Right. I get into this. He still is about technology. He still is thinking about technology yeah. and ethics. Yeah. That book, American Ethics. Right. And I, oh God, it was years ago now. I called him up. 
and said, Professor Borgman, I've never been able to call him Al like everyone else does. It's always yeah. Dr. Borgman or Professor mm. to me. I said, I would like to talk to you a little bit. Can I come by your office when I'm next time mm. in town? He said, sure. So I went by his office, and I said, I have an idea. I would like to have a dinner with you, some law professors, some lawyers, some practicing lawyers, and chat at this dinner about technology and the law. Mm. And then, hopefully, you can write about it. Mm. And he was enamored with that idea. Mm. And so he did. So we did, and he did. Mm. And I think I... Sh- and, and the article was good, but it wasn't his best work. Mm. We just didn't give him enough um, to work with, I don't think. I. Mm. To me, it was just thrilling to go through the whole process and... and I'd be really curious to see what he would say about technology and the law. Do you remember? Um, no, but yeah. <coughs> the article is available, I think, yeah. online through Montana Lawyer. It'd be, it'd be interesting. Yeah. The exercise I just enjoyed, the, ex- the actual exercise of having dinner and the conversation, Right. I th- outpaced my expectations mm. 10 to 1. But cool. I don't know if we... You know, I, I, I it, it was still very fun, rewarding. Mm-hmm. But I think that we left some meat on the bone in terms of what we could have accomplished. Mm. Because although then, this business of technology and the law has been studied in a million different ways. Mm. Technology and the delivery of legal services, mm. legal research, human interaction, mm-hmm. judicial decision-making, uh, mm. the uh, how we can, how we can it both become closer through technology and more remote mm. uh mm-hmm. which is a paradox but I think you know what I mean mm. oh yeah mm-hmm. so well it's kind of just what you're talking about with the f- making calls or right. like being in a room with somebody so and we haven't improved things i mm. uh people say i mean a few things that really grind me and I can't do anything about it that is people that describe the 50s as nothing but um, Ozzy and Harriet and then we moved into the 60s and had all of these big advances Ozzy and Harriet Yeah. what's that reference well bless your heart for not knowing <laughs> there was a show in the 60s and the late 50s called Ozzy and Harriet Yeah. and, and Ozzy and Harriet Nelson had two boys Ricky Nelson and another and the, it was a sitcom where the dad wore the suit all the time. The wife was always perfectly dressed. And yeah, it yeah. portrayed the 50s in this really white, Bright. white bread, idolistic. Yeah. And then I think that the youth of the 60s, of which I was part of, yeah. I don't think they got the joke. I think they thought that this was Hollywood's representation of what the 50s was really like. Uh-huh. I, I think it was a cynical um, portrayal, um, sitcom, almost yeah. a sitcom of, yeah. of the 50s. Uh-huh. And then when you do go to the 50s and look at it, and it's not all Ozzy and Harriet Nelson. Yeah. You have The Wild Bunch, 1952, mm. Marlon Brando. You've got Ginsburg writing the, um, Howl? the Howl in 55. Yeah. And 56, right. you've got the Beatniks, what do yeah. they call them? The Beats, actually. The beats, yeah. 
the Beats. They weren't the Beat Nicks until after Spudnik. Yeah. So you have, <laughs> in the 50s, you have everything that gave us the 60s. Yeah. Right. This, um, the 60s, they will tell you, was rebelling against the 50s. It wasn't. It was embellishing the 50s. Mm. It was embellishing the discontent of the 50s. Mm. And Nice. But if you talk to... 20 professors about Ozzy and Harriet. 19 of them tell you, yeah, that was an accurate portrayal of the 50s and the 60s was rebellion against it. Mm. And that's just complete mm. BS. Right. So so where did we get off on this? I How did we get remember. off on this? <laughs> God, my mind is going crazy. Yeah, yeah. I don't know where we started, but that's the one that thing. I mean, I just I got about? that off my chest. Maybe I'll have a better day. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Oh, technology. Well, yeah, we were talking oh, about. I know Borden. where I was. I know where I was. So, what other myths are there out there that have me scratching my head? <laughs> this idea that technology has given us a better informed population. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I don't even know if that myth's getting spread around anymore. No, <clears throat> but. I think that's becoming more and more clear that it's not the case. Yeah, yeah. I I think so, because when Aaron Burr was put on trial, not for shooting Hamilton, which he never stood trial for, I don't think he disappeared to Europe. Mm. But he was put on trial for for treason because he was going to take his own army down to New Orleans Mm -hmm. and start his own country. (laughs) And the proof was pretty clear that that's exactly what he had in mind Mm -hmm. and so the book the trial of Aaron Burr is an interesting one but what I found interesting in the trial of Aaron Burr is that being a dull person I sloshed (laughs) through the voir dire what they asked the jurors the prospective jurors and these were farmers and ranchers and people drawn from the population of the town and I am factoring in the fact uh, that to be on a jury back in the, that day, you had to, you couldn't, of course, been a slave. Yeah. And oh. you couldn't have been a woman, and you had to maybe even be a landowner. Right. But even factoring that in, mm. the jury, as they asked the jury about the affairs of the day and what was went on, the jury was phenomenally educated and phenomenally mm. well-informed, um, far more than my mental image of what the farmers and ranchers out in the field would have known about the affairs of the city and the game. Mm. I mean, it just was... And then de Tocqueville's description of America when he came through... Of course, if you if you want to read a single volume about American politics that describes it better than any other book, and you don't have the Federalist Papers... Read the Tocqueville's Democracy in America. Oh, uh, without a doubt. And I. But anyway, De Tocqueville, in his travels through America, found that every single American house, and he he said, had two books. One, the King James version of the Bible. Mm. The second was the complete works of Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. So and. There were Shakespearean plays in these Montana towns. You know, if if, mm. if you saw a Western, of course, you're going to see the dance halls and the hookers and all that. Mm-hmm. 
but they they had just as equal chance of having a Shakespearean play. Hmm. So you're getting at this idea that before these phones or the internet, people were still disseminating culture and absorbing it, or they were they were far more than we give them credit for. Yeah, yeah, right. Far, I, I, far more. Right. I think that's a kind of a Borgman point in some sense, uh, and it reminds me because. I was just trying to think about law and technology, and of course, the law is technology. Yes, which is the first thing that strikes me. Um, language is also technology. It is. So, um, from that angle, it's kind of hard to to figure out on which mountains we're standing, or um, how those all add up, or which piles of salt we're standing. Yeah, yeah. Um, Borgman, what the hell? So technology, uh, Borgman, I he, but he to me he just he's he always has a sense of frustration that is you know that he's I've there's truth and I'm not getting it through to people. Mm, just, mm. You can see the veins on his head pop mm-hmm, up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've always thought that um, philosophy of technology, which was his field and is his field, I think, still. Oh, yeah. But it never really grabbed on, it sounds like, as a as a philosophical field, compared to, like, analytic philosophy and stuff, which is all the rage. Well, philosophy you know. of technology, I think you just hit on the problem, mm-hmm. is that it's just too broad. Mm, right. Because language itself is a technology. Right. And so, it is so broad. And... You're kind of, it's hard to analyze things with technology. How do you analyze technology with technology? Yeah, yeah. Um, right. I mean, like, we have to use words to talk about problems. Right. And, yeah. And, and that's the problem is, right. Word is like, it's like the problem you get into with describing art. Uh-huh. Uh, right. If words... <laughs> would have conveyed the meaning you wouldn't have needed art in the first place. Right. <clears throat> if if language if if language were perfect, you wouldn't need paintings, you wouldn't need music, you right. wouldn't need any of that stuff. Right. Uh because you would get you would convey whatever emotions or thoughts you needed to do through language. Through symbols. Through symbols, yeah. but in it's it's not perfect. It's the perfect communicator, so you need music and art right. and those things. Well, of course, some people talk about music or art as a type of language, too, and that gets all sorts of confusing. Oh, yeah. It, it's, it's But like, also makes sense. Yeah. We use symbols yeah. and their stand-ins for feelings. And yeah, it's like people them. that say, well, all trials are political. Mm. Well, they are. I mean, you could. But there are trials. Some are more political than others. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And it's, as I say, the dose that makes the poison. Sure, yeah. So... <laughs> Um, well, I don't know how much longer you want to go. I want to take a break. I kind of have to pee and stuff. Well, why don't we? You're welcome to to be done now if we want, or we can pick up and. Why don't you go to the bathroom? Yeah, that's uh. Podcasting is an interesting one too. It's like many of these new terms. It's got a a company name built into it. It came from the iPod. Oh, really? Yeah, oh. so the Apple iPod is what people used to put podcasts on, and it's a pun on broadcast because yeah. it's a podcast. It's broadcast yeah. for your pod, 
But it's kind of fascinating. When a sci-fi book I read one time had imagined a hyper-capitalist future where I guess you could say capitalism had fully integrated into like our language or something, yeah. and people referred to shoes as Nikes instead of shoes. They were just generally referred to as well. That's a Nikes. Whole, that's kind of a whole subset of intellectual property law. Yeah, with, uh, Frigidaire used to, was on the verge of becoming. Generic, hmm. and and General Motors, who made Frigidaire, just about lost its trade. Kleenex, and aspirin was oh. at one time a trademark of Bear. Yeah, but they lost it largely because they took invaded Poland, and the, and Bear was owned by the Germans, and so uh. close calls were not going Bear's hmm. way during the time. Yeah, yeah. So aspirin, the name, used to be owned by Bear's Bear, company. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it became a more general. What happens is if you don't protect a trademark, you uh, can lose it. Yeah. Uh, and so, for ex- I mean, the one that comes to mind modernly is the t- term realtor, R-E-A-L-T-O-R. Yeah. That is a trademark, a registered trademark of the National Association of Realtors. Really? It is not a word, generic word. Get out of here. Yeah. And so if you... It was coined... They owned the term. Yeah. And so if you use it, even in an opinion, if, for example, the Supreme Court of Montana writes an opinion and uses the term realtor generically, yeah, they will get a petition from the National Association of Realtors saying, we want you to change your opinion, to capitalize it, and put a little round R there to signify that you're using our term. And if they don't do that, now, that seems picky. Yeah. If they don't protect their trademark, they can lose their trademark. So, uh-huh. they, so for the same thing down here on 27th Street <coughs> at that master lube where they uh, they allow the kids to come in or the high school students to come in and put a mural on the wall. Yeah. One year they put a mural on the wall and there was uh, Mickey Mouse or, or some Disney character. Copyrighted character. And Disney came in and said, you can't do it. They say, well, that seems petty of them. But they have to they maintain. Have to, they have to protect their yeah. their mark, or they lose their mark. <clears throat> I'm wondering what interest. I mean, why trademark the term realtor? Like with 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 Mickey Mouse, I understand because it's a powerful image that you right. want to maintain. But how, what's the analog with realtor? Yeah. Oh, they don't. They do not want people who are in uh, the real estate business saying that they're realtors right. without paying the dues. Sure. So you can sell real estate all day long without being a realtor uh-huh. because you're no longer, you're not a member of the National Association of Realtors. Yeah. But if, but you're a licensed sales salesperson or broker. Yeah. So. Far out. What a scam, man. <laughs> oh, so they, they, they do a lot to protect their mark. Yeah. Yeah. And they actually have a, quite a rigorous ethical court in the National Association. Mm. And so, and I have represented people that have been before the body. Mm. And if you do something unethical, even if the state of Montana doesn't think it's illegal, and even if the court system doesn't think it's illegal, the National Association of Realtors will sanction you or boot you out of the organization. Hmm. And it's the, and they mean business. Mm-hmm. I, I've, they mean business. Hmm. So they clean up their act mm-hmm. and they rid the association of the bad ones right 
Fascinating. I I just like had real estate like vaguely interest me over and over. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I wonder about like the extent to which it's like a club, like realtors. And I guess it is. Yeah. Like I had that sense that like you have to be able to get in, and if you do, you can get your house listed, and you can sell the houses, yeah. and you can refer to each other, yeah. and it's a good business. But well, Adam Smith, in 1776, in the Wealth of Nations, and his writing, he was correct. He says that when people of a certain industry get together, yeah. They they have good and bad motives. Mm. The good motives are so oftentimes to uh, set professional standards. For example, set the standards of what a pint of beer is, mm. and and what it's got to have in it to be called beer. Mm-hmm. Right. <clears throat> but it doesn't take too long before they start transforming into an organization to create artificial barriers to entry. Right. Market divisions uh-huh. that are not in the public interest, maybe maintaining prices that are not in the public uh-huh. interest. And that's currently a big fight with bar associations oh. and other associations where the United States Supreme Court has said you can't use these associations to wrongfully and unlawfully restrain trade. Yeah. Uh, you can use them to improve your profession, but you can't use them to restrained trade and there's a big arguments there'll be an argument as to whether any certain codified behavioral sanction is uh, just a trade regulation to help the trade out or uh-huh. does in fact help the public out right so and well and how do you determine that and well you know you, you gotta let your conscience be your guide and right. in my life the most of the restrictions for what lawyers could or couldn't do have vanished. Mm. For example, lawyers used to not be able to advertise. Now they can. Mm. There used to be, in counties, there were fee schedules. Lawyers, you'd have to charge charge so much for this and so much for that. Mm. Lawyers would not be sanctioned for charging more than that, but they'd be charged for charging less. Right, because they were gouging the market. And so the, the judges and regulators were saying, wait a minute. How does it help the public that this lawyer charges half what the other lawyers do? Mm. And it was a hard case to make. Mm-hmm. And so the Supreme Court threw them out said, mm-hmm. no, fee schedules, the market will guide fees, not people getting in the back room mm. conspiring to set high fees. Right. Right, right. And I agree with the decision. Mm. So. Hmm. Um, let's see. I, I know we're kind of winding down on time, so I, wanted, I was trying to think if there's anything I wanted to grab while I've got you. Um, oh, well, too, I I remember specifically, kind of back, way back to a point at the beginning, um, one time we were at that living room show that my friend Grant played and that okay. Stan, Stan streamed. Okay. Do yes. you remember that? Yes, yes. Um, we were talking and you mentioned something like, man, I, I think there's a lot of... A lot of stuff that people in my office could learn from hanging out with these kind of people, huh. and vice versa. Yeah. Um, and and this is kind of like what got me thinking along these lines a bit is how much different groups can offer each other just based on their kind of reality that they take for granted, like normal protocols. Yeah. For one person can be a breakthrough for another person. Um, 
And so I just wonder if there's anything. One thing that I've been noticing lately is that I need to tighten my fucking business shit up. Is that like um, I'm a decent businessman, but my uh, discipline around it is shitty. Um, I can. Well, then you'll go broke. Right. Well, and I kind of have, but um, I, there's also ways to work and get out. And um, but it, it is becoming like very clear to me that I'm atrophied in some areas that are very important. Um, organization, general organization, just being another one. Um, but that other people, by nature of their lives, uh, you know, in my mind, mostly meaning if you have a nine to five job, like that's a pretty big structural aspect right. of a life. And um, I think you have to be more diligent in your organization, given that part of why I've gone like the way of an artist or a, a hustler or whatever you want to call it is because it's fluid. Yeah. But part of that is also makes it harder to organize or less. Uh, it doesn't well, lend itself to as much. you're embracing a fiction. Uh, and that is it's less fluid. It's not. Right. Um, it. It is. Uh, more rigid. It, you mm. instead of having others gracefully impose the nine to five, you got to do it on yourself. Yeah, and such as I don't have a nine to five job. Right. Um, I'm working all the time. Mm-hmm. Kind of. Right. My dad worked all the time. Mm. Kind of. Mm. Uh, he was uh, up and at him. Get up. Get me up. Uh, at 5.36, the later I would get home at night, the earlier he would find a way to get me up in the morning. Right. <laughs> and, um, and so he was always working. And mm. So was mom, mm-hmm. doing something. In their shop you're talking about? Yeah, in Parker Livestock. Yeah. They, would, they were hustling and opening new stores and right. doing their own work. And, but then, right. literally the day before he died, no, the day he did die, that afternoon, we were having a cocktail, and he said, you know, Mark, I'd never worked a day in my life. Mm. He says, that's the secret. He says, I never worked a day in my life. Yeah. I was always having fun. Yeah. And so if you can do that, and to some degree, I've never worked a day in my life either. Mm. I've always uh, blessedly enjoyed what I'm doing. Now, that doesn't mean... Mm-hmm. There isn't just hell sometimes when you're going <laughs> through it. Uh, and also, I think I've got a psychological defect. It's called euphoric recall. Oh. Uh, and that is, I've talked to trial attorneys about it. In the middle of a trial is hell. It's just terrible. And you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, Where yeah. your witnesses exhibits, you're sweating everything. And then right. two weeks later, or three weeks later, you're talking to your friends and say, Oh, God, we had fun down in Bronx. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Oh, we did. And you weren't having fun. It was torture. You right. weren't sleeping. It was terrible. Right, right. <laughs> but you're now, three weeks later, telling people how fun it was. Yeah, yeah. A psychologist have told me, they said, if it weren't for euphoric recall, no family would have more than one child. Ah. Because three weeks after childbirth, a mother's saying, oh, it was the most beautiful right. experience in the world. Right. Oh, really? Yeah, And yeah. why were you screaming like right, a banshee? Yeah. It's also cited as the yeah. biggest, one of the biggest pains in the world. So, yeah. No, I. You just have to work. You gotta, as Conrad Burns used to say, and quoting him will always get some people to fold their arms and exhale in the uh, room. I can. I know that. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't <laughs> matter where you start. It matters that you start. Mm. And there's a certain um, glory to tedium. Mm. Uh, 
And so you see these YouTube <laughs> uh, specials, you know, how do you succeed? Well, you make your bed in the morning. You yeah, know, you yeah. Just right. This these rich ritualistic tedious tasks, mm. dishes, dishes, <laughs> everything. It's amazing. Now I'm not good at it. Uh, mm. I have wonderful <laughs> people around me that are right, right. So you have to sort of recognize your deficiencies, mm. and and that's why you can impose a, you can make the first step. Okay, I'm going to impose upon myself. I'll go work at McDonald's. Yeah. And uh, we see this a lot in family law. I have represented a lot of people over the years. I don't do family law much anymore mm. or at all. But mm-hmm. for 30 years, I would represent people. And just as a matter of sociological and economic realities, a lot of more women who mm-hmm. had been out of the workforce. And now, because dad had decided to run off with the secretary, they're going to go back into the workforce. Mm-hmm. And they're just scared to death. Mm. Uh, but they then come into the office after they got a job and with their Burger King hat on or in their purple gown from the veterinarian's office or from some other place. And everything, every component of their life, they were handling better now. Mm. They were had more confidence, better group of friends. Mm-hmm. It was just because of this tedium that they had to go through to l- survive. Mm-hmm. It seemed to have a therapeutic uh, effect, positive one in every other component of their life. Mm. Uh, and I observed that many times. Mm. And it, and, and so it's. There's nothing wrong with it. No. Well, in the tedium and little things is, like, kind of what I'm finding, like, add up. Yeah. And it's it's actually kind of a favorite concept of mine, like, when you're trying to solve a difficult problem that's really tight somehow, is that usually you need, like, a wedge to get in somehow. And it seems like... Um, you got to find the end of the string. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Yeah, like un- untangling Christmas lights or... right. Yeah, it's, and also, I've represented a lot of attorneys mm. over the years, and some of them get balled up in, um, it's, it never, there's never one thing. It's usually a cocktail of mm-hmm. of depression or some other low-level um, psychological disabling, mm-hmm. dis- sometimes it's dyslexia, sometimes it's a, uh, um, hmm. Uh, low-level, uh, Tourette, not Tourette's, but uh, Asperger's, which is now a, they just, a component of autism, they mm-hmm. call it, and then some other effect in their life, and they just sit there, and nothing. And then the disciplinary authorities come, and then they decide to self-medicate with mm. legal or illegal substances, and, mm-hmm. and the spiral begins. And mm. I heard at a seminar one time, a guy said, when you get a client like that, and his desk is just a pile of crap, and he doesn't know where to start. He says, the best way to clean off your desk, to close your eyes, do not pick everything up and put it in order. Yeah. Do not make a list. Don't do anything like that. Close your eyes, pick up a piece of paper, and solve that problem. Mm. 
and then close your eyes and pick up the next piece of paper and solve mm. that problem. I've I've given that advice to attorney clients of mine mm. when and they have re- reported back that it works. Yeah, yeah. You just flat. You spend so much time trying to organize. Right. Just. Just start. Just start. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, that's a, that's a really nice concept because even with bullshit at home, like I still have laundry I need to fold in, in this room here. Um, there will be, dish, be dishes that pile up. And I'll be home after, you know, working and not really feel like doing anything. And then I've got like, I don't know, three to five little things to do here yeah. that I want to do to make it tighter. But I don't, I don't know where to start, and I'm kind of like end up overthinking it and just spinning my wheels, yeah. and then I don't, and then I lose the motivation. And but it I like that. It doesn't matter where you start. Yeah, right. It matters that you start. Right. Well, and that's so true because <laughs> usually once you get rolling, then you kind of get on a roll, and then you can knock things out without even noticing it. But yeah, the Girl Scouts <laughs> said that if you're climbing a hill. Make sure you take time off to stop and look down on how much time you've passed. Mm. And I remember using that in speeches before. Mm. Another one is uh, a life lesson that I've used when I speak to people that think they should hear from me. Mm -hmm. Is (laughs) put your own oxygen mask on first before Mm. going to help others. Mm If you're all screwed up, you're not going to help anybody. Right. And so you need your own oxygen mask on first. And I see people out there a lot of times, especially ones in recovery, mm. uh, at about step two, they want to save the world. Mm-hmm. Well, hold on, baby. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> why don't we, you know, rethink this? Check out your bedroom. Yeah, why don't <laughs> we, why don't you go make your goddamn bed before... You want to tell everyone in the world how to make theirs. Right. Put your own oxy- oxygen mask on first. Hmm. Uh, so, or the, the another, the Susian principle of communication. Hmm. No one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Hmm. So my entire philosophy of life comes from Dr. Seuss and flight attendants. Very good. <laughs> cool. So I got to go home. Yeah, man. Thanks for stopping okay. over. Okay. <laughs> Music today is by Panther Car with their new single, Lull, L-U-L-L. It's a nice track. And um, I just got to see some of the guys in Panther Car, Chris and Connor. They were down for a show here at Kirk's Grocery last night with my new project that I'm doing with Jordan Finn and Ty Herman called X-Cat. And then their kind of separate project, Wire Writer. So um, that was fun. And it's also really kind of fun to announce that my band Bull Market and Panther Car and Missoula Band Fools are going to be doing a little circuit across Montana, Billings, Montana, um, sorry, Billings, Bozeman, and Missoula. And we're going to be playing, let's see, maybe I'll announce the dates like in a week exactly. But it's it's March 5th, 6th, and 7th. And I think the order is uh, Missoula, Billings, Bozeman. Um, should be fun. A lot of fun market calendars. These are kind of 
two of my favorite bands and I get to play with them in my band and that's really cool so um, I hope you enjoy this track by Panther Car Panther Car called Lull um, we'll see you around oh also check out waste-division.org think about giving to our Patreon we are no longer doing um, our independent art distribution service we just couldn't keep up with it um, I think we're probably still going to send out stuff to our patrons for holidays or wasty occasions. Um, but we just can't promise anything. So if you want to sign up, just help us move things. Like I said, I'm trying to do more work and it makes it much easier for me to do it if we have some financial support like that. And then we also, of course, spread it around and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, check out waste-division.org. Dot org, you can see a little banner at the top for uh, the Patreon page. Okay. See you around. Mm-hmm.